Welcome to Fabric of Society with Rosa Tolner Clausen and Stine Lindemann. This is the pilot episode that we call From Cottage Industry to Creative Industry, where we talk about textiles and economy. This is the first episode of what we hope will become an ongoing series of podcasts where we're looking at society through the gaze of textile making. The next two interviews are from two quite different perspectives, looking at contemporary handmade and homemade textile crafts, both in Denmark and in Finland. One of them is Laura Delgård. She's a young knitwear designer based out of Copenhagen, and she actually mainly uses her Instagram account to reach her customers and sell her products. But something we find really interesting about the way she works is that she both sells finished products that are made either by her or in production, but she also sells her patterns so that virtually anyone can buy it online and then make it themselves. The other interview and the one we will start with is with Annika Nyberg Frankenholzer from Friends of Finnish Handicraft. Friends of Finnish Handicraft is an organization with a more than 100-year-long tradition for collaborations with artists and designers and architects in the production of patterns for handmade and home production. So similarly to Laura Delvo, Friends of Finnish Handicraft, historically and also today, you can buy either the pattern or the finished product. Enjoy. My name is Annika Nyberg-Frankenhäuser. I'm educated as an art teacher. So I'm not specialized in, in textiles, but I worked very briefly as an art teacher when I was young and then sort of got caught up by journalism. So I worked with media all my life. Came into the, the Friends of Finnish Handicraft through a friend of mine. Mainly, I think, because this is such an important organization when it comes to design. I've always been interested in design and particularly in design history. This is one of the really important organizations in Finland, founded in, in, in the late 19th century as part of this sort of movement to free Finland uh, from, from Russia, which probably wasn't really, it wasn't a very organized movement, I think. But there were lots of people involved and because it was politically difficult, people or use their energy on other things as well. So there's a, a huge cultural movement that erupted towards the end of the, of the 19th century, this organization being part of it. And the main idea from the beginning for the French of Finnish Handicraft was twofold. One, to look into the national heritage of textiles. So textiles made out in the countryside or made all over the country by ordinary people, the traditional handicrafts, to preserve that, to collect it, collect examples so that there would be, so they would not be forgotten, to use those <clears throat> patterns and textiles to create new things. And the other part of it was to build sort of a, a maybe a Finnish national national textile style and to use skilled designers, architects, 
textile designers, artists to create new things. So sort of a balance between tradition and the creation of new designs. And would you say that that's still the core activities or have they changed throughout time? I don't think that there is so much concentration on preservation of the of the cultural heritage anymore, at least not if you speak in the sense of collecting examples or doing anything like that. That I think there is a feeling that that is done. But there is, of course, a, a concentration on preservation of the cultural heritage in the sense that the Friends of Finnish Handicraft has this huge archive of nearly 6,000 patterns, which is now kept with the Design Museum in Helsinki in their archive. And uh, and so part of what we are doing now today is trying to figure out ways in which this fantastic archive with all its richness of patterns and designs and, and textiles could be made, could become alive, be, be used in a modern way, absolutely with respect for the heritage, but still make it available to people. And then what about this business side of yours with with the patterns? I think the first sort of um, little leaflet with patterns was was published sometimes in the end of the of, of the middle of the 1890s. I think it was 1895 if I'm not mistaken. And uh, those were sort of patterns that were I guess partly copied, partly newly designed. And they were meant for anybody. So it goes back a long time, this notion of combining. And I think this is one of the really key things with this organization. Combining high and low, combining elite design, the best artists, the most well-known architects, the really good designers, with creating things and patterns that are then available to just anybody to make. It's really a fantastically democratic idea. We make this pattern, but we trust you to do it. So anybody, even today, anybody can buy a kit, a do-it-yourself kit, and make the most famous riyarag that we have in Finland, the, the one called Lieki, Flame, which is designed by Axeli Galenkalela and, and was part of the, uh, of the 1900 World Exhibition in Paris which is really iconic. I mean, everybody in, knows anything about textiles in Finland would know this rug. But you can buy it and you can produce it yourself and you can have it on your, in, your, in your house. And I think this is, really, this is really crucial. It makes what you are, who you are, what you do, part of everybody. It's, it's for everybody to own. Nobody sort of can claim ownership to it. Everybody can claim ownership to it. And that's that's a fantastic thing because you can say, well, it's part of it's me, it's part of me, it's part of Finland, it's part of who I am, it's part of what Finland is. And uh, so, so the patterns were distributed through these leaflets, which has been available. Yeah, that was that was probably earlier, but the Friends of Finnish Handicraft quite early uh, established a collaboration with uh, a magazine called Kotiliesi. The, the cooperation with Kotiliesi was established in 1938. And there was a whole sort of part of it, which was, was sort of a, a, a part, part of the magazine where you, could, where you could buy things. And Kotiliesi would then be sort of one of the sources of contact with 
people around the country. So there you would find sort of uh, examples of patterns. You would find articles about what Finnish hand, parents of Finnish handicraft would do. You would find where to where to sort of order a, a do-it-yourself kit, all that kind of stuff. That that was also a period when, if we go into this sort of um, other question about the organization established in 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 seventy nine and the business part of the organization, well, they were one for a very long time. And in the twenties and in the thirties, uh, the Friends of the Finnish Handicraft had had fifty people employed when it was at, at its biggest. And the production was done by the friends of Finnish handicraft themselves. They had the looms, they they did the weaving, everything was done by hand. It was a sort of a, a, a cottage industry, really. Yeah. Was it in one location or was it spread all over Finland? The shops have always been in Helsinki and the and the production in Helsinki, but then the weaving uh, has also been done by weavers across the country who did cooperation with the Friends of Finnish Handicraft. And this is still the case. Now we have entered another phase because the fabrics that you can now buy through the website of the Friends of Finnish Handicraft are based on old patterns that we have taken from the archive, but they are produced now industrially. Also the rugs? No, not the rugs. No, but but the fabrics. The, the ones that you can now buy through the website are mainly upholstery fabrics. That's what we have sort of started with. But but this is part of what we talked about much earlier in this interview when we talked about what will now follow. Well, an opening up of the archives is one thing, I hope, that there will be more and more things that we will find in the archives that we can then put as franchising uh, to, to different companies to produce. But that will come. We are, we have, as, as as I said in the beginning, we are so few, and it's so it's so hard on us to to try to 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 do all these things that we, we we've decided to take it sort of step by step. The reason why I'm in Finland today is because of your weaving tradition and the heritage and the presence of weaving still. I'm amazed that I see weaving spaces around in Helsinki. I see looms through windows. Every time I go to a little village, I do find a a weaving space. And I have been thinking whether that is also connected to the fact that Friends of Finnish Handicraft has collaborated with contemporary artists and designers. So it's kind of like the tradition has been... It's it's never kind of stood still and it's never been accepted in Finland that this is how we do it. The, the technique might be the same, but there's been a continuous uh, investigation visually, materially, composition. Do you have any impression of the meaning of this approach for for the for the fact that that the craft is actually relatively present still i i think i think uh, i think you're right that craft is quite present in finnish society and we 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 we're seeing i mean we're seeing a boom at the moment which started already before covid so it's not just due to the fact that people now have time it was it was already there before but in what way that would be linked to the friends of finnish handicraft i find it very hard to say 
I've grown up myself, if I take myself as, a, as an example, I've grown up with a mother who was always sewing and, and doing things herself. So I'm very familiar with the Friends of Finnish Handicraft and have visited as a kid all their shops when, when they still had shops in, in Helsinki. Because that was the place to buy, for instance, material. I was the best, according to my mother. If you wanted, if you wanted something of good quality, that was where you went. So the French Finnish handicraft is very much, I think, associated with good quality, but not at the expense of making it elite, keeping it sort of, you know, it's good quality what you get, but it's still for you. I don't know about this sort of looms. Yes, I mean, there would be something called Medbodyar Institute or the, or Cassie, or um, Kansalaisopisto almost everywhere in every city in Helsinki, in Finland, they would, they would have a weaving department, most certainly. They would have looms where you can go. Very often, people, when they retire, they take up this sort of weaving again, or some kind of handicraft that they long to do, haven't had time while working. But it's very much associated also with making, making your own rag rugs. That's what people do. That's the easiest thing to do. But maybe it's also sort of connected to a certain feeling and a certain confidence when it comes to making things yourself, which I think is also part of it. Because if you if you sort of take away the confidence in that you can you can do you can do this, we can give you Galen Kalevas rug, and and we have confidence that you can do it. That's, that's also important. To me, at least, a lot has happened the last couple of years. Like both, you've been very present with with events and exhibitions. And I think you also got a new, like the website is relatively new. The social media platforms uh, are established. Have you seen that, that that has had an effect on the attention to the archive, but maybe also the business side? Yeah, I, I, we checked with with uh, with Maya Tomi, who is who is responsible for the business, and and she says that there is there is an increased interest, but she also says that the the customers today are not sort of uh, they're very divided. There are sort of old recurring customers, customers who have been around for a long time, but there are also new ones and young ones. My name is uh, Laura Delgo, and I'm a knitwear designer from Copenhagen, Denmark, where I have been doing my own stuff since 2018, where I graduated from the Royal Academy, and I have also been doing some freelance and working for others. Cool. Well, I got to know you or became familiar with your work from finding you on Instagram, and you have quite a big following on there. And it made me think about the difference between how the knitwear scene used to be in terms of, of like the hobby craft that used to be very magazine-based, and now that the whole media landscape is changing and is more online-based, it seems to have provided some cool opportunities for young designers like yourself. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your experience with using Instagram and, and how you find it works best for you? 
I think you're right that totally change and like the power, if you can call it that, used to be with the huge yarn companies. And now you can actually just sit down and write down a pattern and like sell it on Instagram. Like everybody can do this. Of course, there's a difference between how good people are at stuff, but that's like up to the user, I think, and not me to to say. But I think it became a quite interesting market and it's a huge gift for a small designer as myself to be able to be so close to the consumer. And I actually started out when I graduated from school. When I finished, I thought I, I would go out and work for someone else. And I also did that like freelance. But then it, it came to me that people were so so interested in what I did. And I had this opportunity to both do some ready-made knit that I could sell, but also like sell the pattern. And if I didn't make make the pattern and sell it, probably someone else would. So it, it's also like rethinking the whole structure of a company that you can be both selling pattern and a ready-made sweater and a knit kit. Yeah, the game has changed in a lot of ways with the digitalization, where it's both the thing of how you communicate to the customers, which is kind of one side, but it's also then how you sell to customers that has changed. So suddenly you as an independent designer can have a really Mm -hmm. close relationship with your followers directly without going through yarn companies or through magazines. It's you directly Mm -hmm. next to the customer. But then it, it also means that you have to be able to do all the things you're not just designing sweaters and writing down patterns. No, no. I'm like the whole company. And like I don't have employees, so it is me doing everything and also packing and sending and stuff. But um, there's also a huge, uh, what is it called, freedom in that? When I started doing stuff on Instagram, I did it as a private person. And if you scroll down on my Instagram, you can see like pictures of my plant and my daughter and stuff like that, stuff you would put up to like, communicate with your friends close friends and then suddenly it changed so it was also I was a bit slow uh, figuring out wow this is now a business mm. and not just me needing some stuff and having fun uh, I'm still having fun <laughs> but, <laughs> but now it's also a business and to start with I, uh, I I kind of had an idea that you had to go through yarn companies or the fashion houses or stuff like that I was not one of the first one to figure out to do stuff myself. I feel like other people knew that long time before me. But now I, I kind of did and I really try to embrace Instagram. My is my media and like I also have a web page, but it is the only PR I'm doing and I'm not paying for anything. It's just people also reposting and it's really a nice community. So do you actually prefer focusing on your own business with your own recipes and maybe some ready-made pieces? Or would you like to also branch out more? I think that it's still not like the price you get for a knit pattern when you sell it to someone else is still not high enough to really make sense. So it's also, so it's really important to me actually to, to try to do my own stuff also because I need to figure out the real value of what I do because when I know what I can earn on my own then I kind of know what I should have from someone else and and I can see now that I can't really live from doing stuff for others so when I do my own stuff I earn some money and then I can like choose to do stuff for others because I always get paid a little too little when I do that it's more like PR when people look at you, it's kind of a value when you have done stuff with a big company or something. 
But it's interesting that you say that the collaborations you do is really much more about PR than it is about diversifying your income. So it's about reaching out to a larger audience. Yeah. Because I think I would have assumed the other way around that you would be making more money working on your collaborations than you would selling your own things. Yeah, that is quite weird, actually. And now I also chose to say no to all collaborations that are not financially sustainable also because it, it has to make sense or else I will get stressed. For sure. I think it's also when you have a design career, it evolves where in the beginning you're happy to get to get some names on your resume and to get some experience and you might even do something for free or just for getting some clothes. And then along the way, you start being able to demand more and more as you kind of gain more power. Yeah, but it's it's one of those really tricky things because we're also we're all as designers competing against each other, and really it would be good for all of us if we were all better at demanding some pay, so we could collectively kind of raise the bottom of a bit. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually um, quite sad that everyone I asked said like uh, you should do that. It's great PR, and I probably should, but uh, I wish we would be more like saying to each other you should uh, definitely get some more money because it's not okay that some people are um, undervalued or not uh, appreciated for their work. Not when we live in such rich country. For sure. And when you're working with handicrafts, it can be really difficult because a lot of people don't appreciate the time that goes into making. So it's it's hard for them to really appreciate how many hours of work they're actually getting when they're paying for something. Yeah, but don't you think, because I do, that the whole awareness that Instagram are creating for small handicraft designers are like moving people's minds a little about this? Because I, I feel like when, for example, when you when you knit your own sweater or uh, make some clothes for yourself, you kind of get more aware of what it's uh, worth and how long it takes. So you appreciate it more. And then also understand a little bit more about, oh, okay. So that's why this sweater or what it is cost like 5,000. And the the fun part about me selling a sweater for 5,000 in a shop is I earn almost nothing because the shop takes half of it and I have to pay taxes and I have to pay materials. Yeah, I think you're right. People are learning a lot by, by doing it themselves. Definitely there's a bigger understanding for it. Because like the pricing for fashion has just become completely skewed by the outsourcing because People paid so little in countries far away to make things and often way, way too little even compared to their local economy. So people just have a completely false perception of what things should cost. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, I think what you do is actually a part of, of changing that as well. And this whole kind of wave of knitwear becoming cool and craft becoming something that younger people do again i think it's really important for the larger sustainable change that we need to see yeah yeah really and um yeah that we need to see it that, that i'm doing it i think i'm a, a small part of it it's like a wave and there are many uh, people i think people think it's very difficult which it's not I was thinking about this thing that it's really interesting to look at how you can sell your designs in two different ways where one way is to sell a finished product that either you or someone else knits, and the other way is to sell a recipe. So, of course, the recipe is a lot cheaper because people have to do the labor themselves and buy all the yarns. But I was just wondering, how much are you making money on selling the patterns? 
And how much are you making money on selling the product? Uh, I will get back to you in uh, a few years with that, but uh, I can try to answer now. But I feel like I'm I'm in the middle of it, so I'm not sure I I kind of really know the answer. At the moment, I had this dream that I could make some patterns every um, month, and that would like make a, a steady income, so I should not worry about money. And then I can go make those artsy, fashionable pieces that you can buy ready-made, but also as a knit kit or something like that, because I like it to also be uh, available to people that don't have like maybe 5,000 to go buy a sweater. And I think it could be like that. And I think it's going to be like that. But at, at the moment, everything's so new to me. And I just had my first production, which means I had some sweaters knitted by uh, some sweet old ladies in Italy. So it's not like production products, but it's really uh, some ladies sitting at home knitting and like a small company o- owned by a mother and her son. But it is production. I'm not knitting them myself. So it's different from what I'm used to. But then with the expensive products, I have no idea if people want to buy them. So I have maybe 26 sweaters made. I just had that. And I have no clue if people want to buy them. Okay, so it's actually completely new for you to see how that's going to go. I did sell some ready-made sweaters that I knitted myself. I had some. I had a few ladies here in Copenhagen knitting for me. But actually, I did almost everything myself. And, and that was like a minus business. But it took me a while to figure out, okay, you cannot use uh, 30 hours to do something that uh, you get 600 krona for, it's not enough. But potentially with the sweaters I have had made, that could be a, a steady income if I can sell them. And I, of course, I believe I can, but um, yeah. Yeah, actually today I went to a shop in Copenhagen called, called uh, Holly Go Lightly because she bought six of the sweaters from me and uh, she liked them so much so she wanted to order 12 more and I only have the 26 you know now they're all gone actually so it's going pretty well but um, that's one sweater but I would like to make many more and like small drops but I also like the idea of not making too many of each because I can't like be a part of fast fashion and just overproducing and stuff like that so Hopefully, I can do a small collection like this, like 25 to 50 pieces. That's really limited, actually, compared to normally, like small companies have at least 300 made of each. So it is really small. And if I can just sell that, I think it would be fine. But it's still not going to make money for a lot of people. It's, it's still a, for me and maybe one employee. That's where we are. I love that. It really means that you're... Your brand can kind of both be really high end in the terms of having high quality products that cost a bit more because of how they're made. But then also, like how you're saying, people with very little money can even access it. I really, really like how the patterns are for everyone, like the social part of it. You can always like buy it and maybe you can't afford the yarn that I used, but then you can figure out something and make your own version of it. And that's like, how I am I kind of uh, want everybody to have the the chance at being a part of it but I can't make the sweaters I produce when I do so few I can't make them that much uh, cheaper it's just like that so um, I was just so afraid that the, when you're able to buy the pattern people wouldn't buy the ready-made sweaters but it's not like that it's just a uh, different customers and um, I don't think it adds anything bad to the 
ready-made luxury product that you could also make it, make it yourself. And if I didn't sell the pattern, somebody else would just copy it and sell it. So it also, as a such a small company as I am, just me, it's important for me to like earn all the money on my product, not giving it away to someone else. So uh, I will never stop doing the pattern. In both these interviews, we find a really democratic approach to design, where if you cannot afford a handmade product, you can instead buy a pattern and then you can make it yourself. And with Lava Dalco, it actually seems like a twofold motivation, where on one hand, it's this ideal of empowering everybody to be able to create her products, even if you can't afford expensive yarns and so forth. But on the other hand, it's also about protecting her own business from potential copycats who might sell the patterns if she didn't make them herself. Yeah, I think that it's really interesting with both approaches and this democratic approach to design and hand-making. I also think that Annika's remark about the trust in the maker is really important, mm. that uh, there is like a faith in the maker that you can do this. <laughs> yeah. For me, there's also this, uh, what we have also discussed, is that they share both Laura Delgo and Friends of Finnish Handicraft seem like they share an approach in their business. It seems like rather a search and in a kind of moldable state all the time where they search for a business model that makes handicraft products possible to create in a viable business. And rather than then having a finished business model, which would probably be how most business people would approach making a, a company, like making a business model and then executing it. Here it seems like this search and also the acceptance of this hybrid economy. Yeah. So a third similarity between Friends of Finnish Handicraft and Laura Delgo, and actually something that I think is the case for quite a lot of small creative businesses, is a different approach to PR. Where Again, if you look at what a traditional business-educated person would do, usually you would have quite a large budget set aside for doing PR, for having someone manage social media and doing your website and taking nice pictures, where often these small creative businesses, they have a lot of these skills internally already. And I think that's something that's really undervalued, that it is true that a lot of creative businesses, they struggle with making enough money. But I think we should appreciate more their capability of getting a lot out of a little. Mm. I mean, look at Laura Delgo and her reach on Instagram. It's really phenomenal that that's just something she kind of also just does on the side, apart from everything else that she does. It's, it's quite amazing. Yeah. That was it for the second part of Fabric of Society, from cottage industry to creative industry. Stick around for the third part.